the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado. And if you're a regular listener to the radio show, you know that normally Pastor Ron hosts this Bible question show. But he is out uh, this week, and so I'm filling in for my pastor, Pastor Ron. But the show will continue the same. Uh, We're here to take your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about how to put the Bible into practice, how to apply it to your life. Uh, for the goal, the singular goal of helping you fall deeper in love with Jesus. And that's why we're here. And so I'm going to give you the phone numbers to dial in if you want to ask your question on the air. And that's 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. Toll free number is 877 877- Six three zero five seven five seven eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. We have an email address if you want to submit questions that way. It's questions at calvarysa.com. Questions plural at calvarysa.com. You can also use our church mobile app if you want to submit questions that way. And you can use the KSLR app to dial directly into the radio show. If you're in your car, it's much easier. You don't have to mess with your phone. You just click at the banner up at the top, and it'll dial you into the show immediately. Okay, so it's the Wednesday edition to the radio show. And the Wednesday edition means that here at Calvary Chapel, we have our Old Testament study tonight here at Calvary Chapel, 7 o'clock that uh, since Pastor Ron is not here, that uh, we have a um, another teacher, which will be Pastor Peter, Dr. Pastor Peter. He will be teaching tonight out of Habakkuk, and so that will be fun. Uh, also, as a reminder, tomorrow, uh, it's the date day edition. I get to talk a little bit more about that in the, uh, at the end of the show, but since Pastor Ron and Paula are not here, I get to spend my airtime with my best friend, my wife, May, who will be here to take your questions. And so, ladies, if that's something that will be of interest to you, you can tune in to tomorrow's show. That will be the date, the edition, with my wife, May. All right, yeah, Peter told me earlier today that his intention is to teach the entire book of Habakkuk. And so I told him, that's going to be fun. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and... Get to the questions that were submitted. I gave you the phone numbers, and we've got quite a few questions. So the first one is anonymous. We've got a few anonymous questions, quite a few, and that's good. That's okay. Hi, Pastor Ken. This weekend, I read about a young professing Christian who committed suicide. This story prompted a discussion in my household about suicide. Uh, My husband said suicide people do not go to heaven, but I was not sure. Is that the case? 
Thank you. Okay, Anonymous. So we start off the show with a very serious question. And this is something I need to be very clear on. Every single time there are suicidal thoughts, it is always demonic. Always demonic. And, and to answer your question specifically, when you said your husband said that suicide or people who commit suicide do not go to heaven, well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, when someone is a born-again Christian, their sins, past, present, and future, their sins have been forgiven. Now, I always qualify this by saying that every Christian, every born-again Christian, should never, ever consider the thought of suicide. Now, we know the enemy tries to give us discouraging thoughts about harming ourselves, but again, that's always from the devil. A real Christian shouldn't even entertain the idea, but sometimes the enemy wins. And, and because we are limited in these physical bodies to the flesh, uh, sometimes the enemy has his way. But that doesn't mean that the person doesn't go to heaven. And it's definitely not an excuse. It's not okay for the Christian to do that. But ultimately, when a person's sins are forgiven, all of their sin is forgiven. Now, now to the application of this, this is very important. I had already mentioned this earlier, but Paul writes very clearly to his letter, in his first letter to the Corinthians, that, that we, who are believers, are not our own. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, We were bought at a price. This means that our bodies do not belong to us. Jesus owns us. And so we have no right to do whatever we feel like doing to our bodies, especially when it comes to harming, causing harm to our bodies, because Jesus owns us. We are not our own. And so when we deal with thoughts about harming ourselves, which are the real thoughts, number one, we always have to remember that they're always from the devil. Jesus would never tell us to harm ourselves. And, and these are thoughts that come directly from the pit of hell. And when, G when Jesus says through the Apostle Paul that we are not our own, we are bought at a price, this is pointing to our owner, who is Jesus, who paid the price on the cross for our sin. You see, the finished and completed work that Jesus did on the cross by paying for my sin and for every other person's sin who is a born-again Christian, what he has done is he took the wrath that was due to me. And by doing that, he takes ownership of me. This is why we are led by the Spirit as Christians to do with ourselves what he pleases or what pleases him. At any time, the thoughts about suicide enter our, our, our thinking, we have to immediately know that this is from the enemy. It's not from Jesus. And the second thing is, and this is more of a, a, a practical or, or a, a logical way of thinking about this, you know, when, whenever a person is struggling in their life with difficult things, and I don't mean to minimize the difficulties of life, there are some really difficult things that people are going through. Sometimes they can't articulate them. Sometimes they can't find someone who can understand the pain that they're going through. Well, these difficulties of life uh, aren't, caused necessarily by the, the, the physical body. I mean, in other words, the physical body is not what's causing your problems most of the time. It's the things of life that are causing us stress and anxiety. And, and so why harm the physical body when it's really your heart that's hurting? Let Jesus deal with your heart. And this is what I always tell people because the enemy is opportunistic. When somebody's discouraged, and they don't think their life is worth anything. The enemy's right there. But if you look to what Jesus says, he says, you're worth the world to me. 
God the Father says, I paid the ultimate price for you. So we have no right to cause our physical bodies harm because we belong to Jesus. I hope that's clear, Anonymous. That discussion in your home has to be something that's done. And I love the fact that you say when you read a story uh, about a professing Christian and it becomes a family discussion. This is something that your kids, if not discussed at home, your kids will get opinions from their friends, from the Internet. And that's not a good place to get guidance. So I love the fact that this discussion is, have, is being taken place in your household. But in this case, your, your husband is wrong. And suicide doesn't, doesn't mean that a person doesn't go to heaven. Being born again is what determines whether a person goes to heaven or not. And so I hope that's clear. And, and the last thing I'll say about that, if there's anybody here in the radio listening audience that is dealing with these issues, with these thoughts of harming yourself, please talk to somebody. Please talk to somebody. Go to the leadership of your church. I promise you, no matter how busy they may seem, they're not too busy for you, especially when it comes to talking about something as serious as this. Please talk to them. And if you are not able to talk to anybody, talk at your church. Uh, call us. Call, here, call us here at the church, and we'll be more than happy to encourage you in the word. Okay, Anonymous, thank you for your question. The next question is from Frank. Frank's question is, is two, two parts. Does worshiping God mean uh, only mean in songs? And what are other ways to worship God? Oh, Frank, I love this question. Okay, so first of all, worship as described in the Bible, does not mean singing songs. Sometimes it does. We see that in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, when we see the angels and everybody worshiping the Lord. But uh, worship in the Bible is described, uh, usually accompanied by death. It's accompanied by death. Now, Whenever you study your Bible or you read through the passages, particularly in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices or sacrifice offered to the Lord, whole burnt offerings where they, they, they take the sacrifice and they, they burn it and letting the, the smoke rise to the Lord, that's worship. That's described as worship. So it isn't just singing, but it is a description of offering to God that which belongs to him. And sometimes we do it in songs, sometimes we do it. But more importantly, it's a lifestyle and how you describe it or how you offer your life to the Lord. That's how you worship the Lord, with your life. Are there other ways to worship God? Absolutely. Besides singing, you, you worship the Lord by exercising your gifts. You worship the Lord by um, exercising the, not just the gifts, but, but demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. You worship the Lord by dying to your flesh. Again, in the Old Testament, whenever worship is mentioned, something dies. Our flesh needs to die. And that's the picture that's given to us. I love what Paul the Apostle writes in the second chapter of his letter to the church in Galatia or into the Galatian area. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the dying when it, in the context of worship. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a wonderful picture of worship. It's not something that's emotional. It's not something that is, is driven by feelings. It isn't something that is like high one moment and, and low the next. 
the picture that Paul paints here about his life is one of consistency and, and, and even being even keeled. And he talks about the life that he lives. He, he lives by faith. I can't think of a better way to worship God than to walk by faith. So, Frank, that's the, the mindset that we should have when it comes to worship. You know, whenever somebody offends you, whenever somebody cuts you off on the freeway, you know, worshiping Jesus would be to put uh, your obedience in the, the spirit of God instead of obedience to your flesh. Dying to your flesh and being obedient in the spirit is the picture of worship. One more thing about this, and this is something that I think about. You know, when Paul, the apostle, and Silas, and poor Silas, this is his really his first job assignment in the book of Acts, chapter 16. He just joined Paul, and there they end up in prison in the city of Philippi. And while they were praying, midnight in the jail cell they started crying out to the lord praying together singing hymns to god and while they were doing that that was worship while they were doing that the other prisoners were listening to them and then you know the rest of the story there in the philippian jail when the doors opened up people got saved when people who are called by God, who love Jesus, are living lives of worship, people get saved. People get saved. And yes, worship is wonderful at church. When you're lifting up your hands and you, you know, you're singing along with love songs to Jesus, that is worship. But the worship that honors the Lord in your lifestyle when you're out of church, when you're amongst people, is what God will use to draw people unto himself through your lifestyle. So, Frank, I hope that helps. Thanks for your question. Let me give the phone numbers one more time. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. The toll-free number is 877 877- Six three zero five seven five seven eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven, and the email address is questions at calvarysa.com. Questions at calvarysa.com. Okay, our next question is from Jerry. Hey, Pastor Ken, I'm reading through Luke twenty-two, and I'm at the part where the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Can you give me your thoughts about why Jesus answered them by saying, uh, quote, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? Okay, Jerry, this is a great question. So the context here is Jesus giving his disciples an example. And, and this is the time when the, the disciples on their way to the upper room are bickering amongst themselves about who is the greatest among each other. And you're, so you're right. That's the context here. Now, Jesus' response to them is absolutely perfect. Because what he says is, who is greater? The one asking them to ask them, themselves a question. Who's greater? The one at the table or the one who's serving? And so in their minds, as Jesus would ask the disciples this question, they would have to think, okay, there's one who is being served at the table. This is sort of painting a picture of like a master and a slave. Well, the one who is at the table is the master. And the one who serves is the servant, the slave. And, and Jesus says, is it not the one who's at the table? He's the greater one. But I, that's the key. 
I am among you as one who serves. Now, the disciples knew that Jesus was the master. He was their master. And so what Jesus is doing is he is identifying with the servant in this picture. He's saying, I am among you as one who serves. Therefore, what he's telling the disciples, and the word here he uses is the same word we use for deacon, one who serves in a, in a lowly way, a servant. The disciples should copy his example. They should desire to be like him and lead by being a servant. This is exactly what Jesus did with his disciples in John chapter 13. Remember, this is the, the foot washing scene. And Jesus is saying to, to them there as he is washing their feet. Remember when Peter tried to stop him, Jerry. Jesus said, I'm doing this as an example for all of you. What does that mean? He's saying, I already know, you already know that I am your master. But I'm teaching you and I'm showing you that this is what leaders do. They serve. And so he said, I'm doing this as an example for you to follow. Matthew chapter 20. When he's and this is a passage where he is addressing specifically what they're dealing with here in Luke 22, which is arguing amongst themselves who wants who's the greatest. And Jesus says in Matthew 20, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Must be your servant. And so, when Jesus, to answer your question, Jerry, when Jesus was saying, but I am among you as one who serves, what he's saying is copy my example. You already know that I'm your master. Now, the way the world thinks is that the master is the one that's at the table. But I'm telling you, he says, that the, the, the leader is the one who serves by example. And on a side note, Jerry, and I know this isn't what your question is about, but uh, we've got a few minutes here left into this first half. I, this brings up something that I, I want to talk about for just a second. It's sort of tangential, but it is related. One of the most offensive, I think personally, the most offensive passage in the entire New Testament is about servanthood. And it's in Luke chapter 17. Jesus himself is speaking, and in verse 7 he says, Suppose one of you has a servant, plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant, when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he gather, won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, you can tell why this is so offensive, because it means when a servant is treated like a servant, they should serve, because it's a test of their heart. Now, the context of what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 22 is a little bit different, but it really isn't, because a servant leader should serve with the right heart. And that's exactly what Jesus is describing here in Luke 17. Servanthood isn't just doing the, the, the work. It's the heart in which you do it with. And so when a servant is told to do something, it doesn't mean that they get to do it but then provide their opinion afterwards. It means they're supposed to do what they're supposed to do and not expect a thank you. And this is a real test for us because our pride gets offended when, when we get treated like a servant. But the truth is, we are servants. We are servants, we're slaves unto righteousness. And as it relates to your uh, question, Jerry, in Luke chapter 22, God's not going to call anyone to lead if they first don't know how to serve. God isn't going to ask anyone to lead unless they first have a servant's heart. 
And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. Because that first read, when they're arguing, sort of bickering amongst themselves about who is the greatest, it seems like an odd answer. It seems like an odd answer. But he addresses the heart of the issue. And so I love that. Jerry, I hope that encourages you because uh, that this is something that I, from just my own opinion, I, I see our modern church culture not having a full understanding of what it means to be a servant. We think that the servants are people who, you know, clean the church or servants are people who, whose responsibility is to, you know, you're a janitor. Those are servants. No, every single believer should be a servant, should have the heart of a servant. That's why Luke 17 is so offensive to us. But it's also a test of our hearts. And so, Jerry, I hope you are a servant and wherever God has called you to be at home, at your church, use the gifts that God has given you to serve the people around you. You can hear the music. That means we are at the end of the first half of the Wednesday edition of Word to Stand On for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. I'm filling in for my pastor, Pastor Ron, this week on this radio show. So if you're just tuning in, I know some of you listen to the second half on your way home Welcome to the show, the phone number to call into the radio show with your questions is 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585, the toll free number is 877-630-5757, 877-630-5757. We have an email address that's questions at calvarysa.com, questions at calvarysa.com. And you can submit your questions via the mobile app, or you can dial into the show using the KSLR app with the call now button up on top. I'd mentioned earlier, I mentioned this again, so real quickly, Wednesday is our Old Testament Bible study night with Dr. Peter teaching in the book of Habakkuk. Join us at 7 o'clock here in person at church. One more thing I do want to mention. And so a producer reminded me that today is the 246th birthday of the U.S. Navy. This is something special to me, so I just want to say happy birthday to the U.S. Navy because my dad was retired Navy, and so was my father-in-law. Both uh, my dad and my wife's dad were in the Navy, both retired from the Navy, and so that has a, a special place in my heart. It's actually part of our testimony. It's really neat. Uh, So happy 246th birthday to the U.S. Navy. And if you have served or are serving our country in that way, God bless you. Thank you very much. Okay, let's go on to the questions that have been submitted. This one is a, a long one. It's from AJ. So in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, it says... When Judas had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, and uh, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Question, is Judas still condemned to hell even though he confessed he sinned and tried to return the money he betrayed Jesus with? Great question, AJ. And so something that we need to understand here 
and and I think the answer to your question is understood in the difference between repentance and remorse. Judas did not repent, and unfortunately, the King James translation, anything, any derivative of the King James translation, uses the word repent. But Judas did not repent. He felt remorse. Judas felt remorse, and as a result of his remorse, he changed his mind. Now, this is important because motive is what's key. And when someone, in this case, when Judas felt remorse for his decision, his motive didn't change. His motive was still selfish. And I hope you understand that. Repentance means, uh, repentance produces an inward change of heart. But being remorseful, it produces an outward sorrow. Usually because you got caught, or usually because you realize you're wrong. But this outward sorrow doesn't necessarily mean that there was an inward change. Repentance always takes place on the inside. Now, with true repentance, it is correct in saying that true repentance will produce fruits of repentance. John the Baptist mentioned that when he was speaking to the Pharisees. And so when a heart is truly repentant, that means inwardly the heart is changed. And as a result of that inward change, the fruits of repentance will be demonstrated in the life of that person. Here, what we see with Judas in Matthew chapter 27 is simply a person who feels bad because they realize afterwards that they made the wrong choice. And this is why Judas is still condemned because even if outwardly there was an appearance of change, inwardly we don't see any evidence of his heart truly repenting. And so I hope that helps, A.J. Thank you for your question. You know, this is something that we deal with all the time in the practical application of God's Word here in dealing with people and counseling. Uh, it, it's something that people confuse in their own lives when they, they feel like they, they have changed. I deal with this all the time in marital counseling when you know, the husband or the wife has done something that hurt the other. And they'll say, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, and it's a sorry that doesn't, isn't followed up with any change of attitude or change of heart. And how you can tell is because that the, even the word sorry coming out of their mouth is said in such an aggressive and angry way that there's no evidence or no fruit of repentance there. A heart that is truly repentant has the birthmark of owning their sin. That's the birthmark of a repentant heart. They own their sin. They're not trying to blame anyone. And like I said, when a, whenever you have somebody that just says, well, okay, fine, sorry, that, that attitude... It demonstrates that there is no repentance on the inside. It's just maybe remorse on the outside. And that doesn't change anything. So thank you for your question, AJ. The next question here, we'll move on, is from Tiffany. What are the differences between an unbeliever's judgment when they die and a believer's judgment when we die? Oh, great question, Tiffany. Okay, and so since you said uh, we, when a believer's judgment, when we die, I, I'm going to assume, Tiffany, that, that you're a believer, um, so I hope this helps. There is a huge difference between judgment for an unbeliever and judgment for a believer. It is true that every single one of us will face judgment. This is what the Bible says. But the type of judgment is drastically different. For believers, the Bible uses a word for judgment 
that says bima, and this is what we, why we call it the bima seat. This is the judgment seat of Christ. It's not judgment into condemnation. This is a word that's used to describe sort of the, the award ceremony for the Olympic events. If you would imagine, if you will, the, the tiered stage of first and second and third and the meddling, the meddling process, well, this is similar to what believers will experience. Second Corinthians chapter 5 is, describes this. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, also describes the Bema seat. So it's not judgment into condemnation. It is the award ceremony or, or where we will receive our rewards for what we've done in faith. And this is going to happen for believers, for believers. The second part of your question, for unbelievers, their judgment's completely different. This is only one judgment, and this is described in Revelation at the end, chapter 20. And, and, and this describes, this is always described as the great white throne of judgment. The great white throne is judgment for all unbelievers. They will all stand before the great white throne, all the unbelievers will, and receive judgment that will cast them into the lake of fire. So every single person that is an unbeliever, that dies as an unbeliever, will, will be resurrected, if you will, and stand before the great white throne of judgment, and every single person that appears at the great white throne of judgment will be cast into the lake of fire. So that's the judgment awaiting for unbelievers. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that it has been appointed unto man to die once and then face judgment. And so for unbelievers, that judgment will come at the great white throne. So Tiffany, I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. All right, the phone numbers to dial into the show, 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585. Toll-free number is 877-630-5757, 877-630-5757. The email address is questions at calvarysa.com. Okay, I have a oh, related question. Mm, uh, similar to Tiffany's, uh, you know what? I might have missed this. This might have been the second part of her question. I'll just go ahead and ask it. It says, I understand the Bible on gaining and losing rewards uh, slash crowns in heaven, but I hear pastors and some people say we will throw our rewards back at Jesus's feet after we get them. Will we do that? And where in the Bible does it say that we will do that. Okay, this is a great question. Again, I apologize, Tiffany, if this is your question. I didn't read it earlier, but I'll take care of it now. So, the question about the rewards uh, being cast at Jesus' feet, uh, this is answered in Revelation chapter 4. You know, Revelation chapter 4 deals with the, the, the rapture, of the church, rapture of the church at the very beginning, and then we read in verse 10 about the 24 elders. They represent us, those of us who are born-again believers. And it describes them as falling down before him. This is Jesus who sits on the throne to worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So the re rewards that receive is sort of demonstrated by the elders here. Again, they represent us. And as they lay their crowns, they, they lay their crowns at the feet of Jesus at his throne, they're worshiping him. Now, the practical application of this is very important because today, those of us who are born-again Christians should want reward, should want the crowns so that we could cast them at Jesus' feet. We don't want rewards for our own selfish gain, but just like the, the example that the elders set for us here, again, they represent us, the believers. Revelation chapter 4, they're collecting their crowns to lay them at Jesus' feet. And I want to be able to 
lay my crowns down at Jesus' feet. Not because I want to show off to anybody, not because I want to walk around heaven with a big knapsack that has a lot a lot of crowns, and not because of anything like that, but because I want to worship my Jesus. I want to honor him, and I want to give him everything and not keep every, anything to myself. It also sh- shows that everything that we do while we're here on earth, we do for his glory. And and if there are things that are done with selfish ambition, well, those are going to be things that we thought we might have a crown for where we end up not having a crown because our motive was wrong. And so, uh, Tiffany, I apologize again for missing that part of your question. I, I hope that helps. Let's go back to our phone lines. I've got Alan from New Braunfels on the air. Hello? Alan, are you there? Hi, Alan. I'm, Thanks for hi, calling. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Uh, I, I believe uh, that uh, God's whole word is living, and, and, and um, I started reading in First Chronicles and all the, the gaps, and I just wanted to ask you, how do I approach that? I'm, I feel motivated to just kind of skim through it. I laugh, Alan, because I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and so let's, the first nine chapters, I believe, almost 10 chapters of First Chronicles, I have to admit, it's pretty difficult reading. I mean, because it's begat after begat after begat, and it's describing the lineage that leads from, you know, all the way from Adam to Abraham. And so it can get tedious. But if you are interested at all in any history, uh, one of the things that I find interesting about lineages, and we see this in Matthew and in Luke, there's always stories there. Now, you don't want, I don't mean read into it and you know, analyze the etymology of every single name. Some people want to do that. I, I don't think that's necessary. But when it comes to looking at something like First Chronicles 9, it is full of names that have stories to each one of them. And this is the beautiful thing about our Bible, Alan. When we study the stories of the people, we see God glorified. This is sort of like what we look at in Hebrews chapter 11. A lot of the people mentioned there are in this lineage in First Chronicles. And so what I would encourage you to do is to take your time reading through it and look at the names and what happened. I mean, obviously, we're starting off with Adam when there there's already a story that we're familiar with. But as you go on and we get into uh, into David, we see the background that is being set up. We see the background of that God is establishing uh, in order to get to the story of Solomon and, and and Israel. And so I wouldn't skip through it. I wouldn't brush past it so quickly. What I like to do, and again, this is different depending on, you know, how you're approaching your study in the Word of God. Sometimes I read it quicker, and sometimes I'll go through it a little bit slower. But either way, it's God's way of setting the background, if you will, the context of what he goes on to describe in chapter 10. Because, you know, when once we get into Saul and then into David, knowing that the genealogies have been established paints a picture of what happens next. And that's, that's the best that I can tell you, Alan, because I have read through that quickly and I've read through it slowly. And Every single time I come across names that I think, Lord, I have no clue what you're saying here. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you're saying. And then there's other times when I read stories about people's names that come to mind as I'm reading. And I'm thinking, God, I forgot what you did here, Lord. This is a great story. And so that's the best uh, advice I can give you, Alan. Read it, read it through quickly, and then read it through slowly. But let the Lord speak to your heart. I hope that helps. That is the one passage of Scripture. You know, people look at the genealogies in Luke and in Matthew. They're nothing in length compared to the one in First Chronicles. <laughs> so, Alan, I hope that helps. Thank you for your call. 
Okay, let's go back to our email questions. The next one is from John. Is it wrong to be a Christian and join the military? And specifically, where we go and fight for our country. I was told that it's wrong when you make the decision to go to someone else's country with the intention to kill people because that's murder and murder is sin. Is that true? We call it defending our country. Others say it's murder. What are some biblical principles based on this situation? John, this is important. It's not wrong to join the military. In fact, it's an honorable thing. But it's not so much that the, the military itself, because you can take any vocation and with the wrong heart be wrong with the Lord. You can turn anything into sin when you do it with the wrong motive. But when it comes specific to the military, it's wrong when somebody says you're in sin because you joined the military because you're fighting. Again, this is a noble cause. It's, it's a noble job and it's a noble calling. When, and I would point you to the scriptures because God himself told his own people that to go and to the Israelites, to the ancient Israelites, go and occupy the land. That meant that effectively they would have to go and fight and even kill some of the people that were there. Now, since God never tells anyone to sin, that means killing someone in war is not the same thing as murder. So whoever told you that, with these conversations that people have, you can just tell them to keep their opinion to themselves. Now, if somebody were to go in the military and, and, and intentionally try to murder somebody, well, they may do that, and that would be sin. But that's not a blanket statement you can say for the entire military. This is specific to the individual heart. You know, Matthew chapter 8 is, is one of the other New Testament examples. You know, when Jesus was speaking to the centurion, did you notice that Jesus doesn't condemn him? Not only that, but Jesus commends the centurion for his faith. He doesn't say, you know what, I can't talk to you. You're a soldier. You're a, you're a person of blood. He commends him because of his faith. And we also know from David, King David, that being a man of war, Joshua is also described as being a man of war. But, but King David specifically, because he was a man of the sword, had a lot of blood on him. And, and because of that, there were consequences. There were consequences. You know the consequence. One of them is not being able to build the temple that he wanted to, and so his son had to do it. But in no way does that mean that every single soldier or someone who serves in the military is wrong, or if it's wrong to be, if you're a Christian, to be in the military. No, that's not true. Last thing, I would think about this too. When Paul the Apostle writes to Timothy, he often uses military soldiers sort of a, as illustrations to describe his theology. He, he says in his second letter to Timothy that Christians, good Christians, should be like good soldiers for Christ. And, and, and the idea, what he's doing is painting the picture of warfare. And Christians are engaged in spiritual warfare. And whether or not they, they want to admit it, they are. And the example that Paul the Apostle uses is one to be of a fighter, of a good soldier, knowing that you're engaged in a battle. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, a, a Christian who is not aware that they are engaged in spiritual warfare is one that's not going to be ready. You know, Paul goes on to tell Timothy that... Uh, a soldier should not get caught up in civilian affairs. That means a soldier can't get distracted by the task, uh, from the task at hand. The civilian affairs would be anything not related to the military. And that's a good example that Paul uses for Christians. He says, be like that kind of soldier. 
If it were wrong, Paul wouldn't use the soldiers as an example for Christians to follow. Again, I know it's a metaphor that he's using, but there's absolutely no condemnation for, for being a Christian that's in the military. It's funny that you mentioned that, John, that question just came in on the, the, the 20th, 246th birthday, I think, of the Navy that I mentioned at the opening of the second half. Um, it is not a bad thing to be in the military. Now, it's not a calling for everybody. That has to be said. But if you are a Christian and you are in the military, God bless you because you are a light in a really dark and difficult place. And we need you there. There's so much going on in our world, and and the military is not exempt from corrupt hearts. But given the fact that there are people in the military who aren't saved, how much can imagine how much a Christian can be used to witness to those that are in the military? So, John, thank you for your question. Uh, You can hear the music. That means we are. At the end of the Wednesday edition, reminder tonight, Dr. Pastor Peter Paley is teaching in the book of Habakkuk, 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. Tomorrow is the date day edition with my best friend, my wife, May. We'll see you at 4 o'clock tomorrow. God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.